Um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that last week we ended our series on the life of Joseph. And this week, we're beginning a new series called I Am. And for the next seven weeks, all the way through Easter, we're, we're looking at the seven I Am statements that Jesus made about himself in the book of John. In the book of John, seven times, Jesus says, I am, and then gives a metaphor for who he is. And so we're going to go all the way through Easter, ending with I am the resurrection and the life. But I think what's interesting about these statements is if I introduced myself to you and I said, I am Jordan Rippey, and I told you my name, really the only thing that would have any significance to you in that sentence would be my name. I, we, we look at I am as just kind of like a passing, like something that just has to be said. It doesn't really carry any significance to it. It's just what we say to get to what we really want to know. It's what we say to get to what we're really asking in the moment. But this was very, very different for Jesus. When Jesus said, I am, those two words actually held very significant meaning in the lives of the listeners who were hearing him say those words. When Jesus said, I am, just those two words were enough to get their attention because there was actually context to what he was saying in their lives at that time. And the reason we're taking this time over the next few weeks to look at the seven I am statements of Jesus leading into Easter is because I fully believe that the best thing you can do leading up to Easter is to become more acquainted or reacquainted with who Jesus is, to become more intimately connected to who Jesus is, because the danger in the lives of those of us who are followers of Jesus is that we'll come up to Easter and we'll celebrate it as a day, but we'll forget the significance of all that led up to the moment of Easter, the moment of that crucifixion and resurrection. That, that the reason that it has any significance is not just that it happened, but who it happened to. That the person of Jesus is what gives the Easter story significance in that moment. And what we have to understand about those two words, what we have to understand about I am, is that the significance to the listener of that day would have been great. You really have to understand the story that they are coming out of to understand the significance of those two words. And so today, we're going to look at two stories and really an item. Because the first thing that Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, the first time he reveals himself as I am, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And in order to really understand what he meant by that, there's two stories that you have to understand. And the first goes all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter three, because the first time that God reveals himself in scripture, it's in the desert and it's through a burning bush. And there's a man named Moses tending sheep, and he sees this burning bush. The Bible tells us that it catches his attention, and so he goes over to it, and he hears a voice that tells him to, to take off his sandals. He's on holy ground. And then we don't need to get into all of the details of the story, but essentially God tells Moses that he's going to use him to liberate his people, the children of Israel. He's going to use Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. So essentially in that moment, God is asking this, this man who's out tending sheep to go to the highest ruler of the day and say, I demand something of you. And as you can imagine, Moses in that moment is more than intimidated. And so he says, the important thing that I need to know is if I'm going to go and make demands of someone with such great authority, if I'm going to go to a ruler of that caliber and I am going to request something from him, I need to know who's sending me. How many of you know that it matters who is sending you to say something? 
It matters who is sending you to carry a message. I was out in our kitchen working a couple days ago, and our girls were in the backyard, and they go through phases. Some days they absolutely love each other, and some days I don't think one of them's going to make it through the day alive. And this was one of those second kind of days. And I just heard them out in the backyard and everything was an issue. Everything was drama. We have three girls in our house and sometimes it's a lot. And they were just fighting over every single thing that you could possibly fight about. And our oldest daughter, Bella, was really kind of giving it to our, young, our middle daughter, Sophia, at one point. And I kept hearing Sophia tell her to stop and tell her to stop. And she told her to stop and she told her to stop. And Bella was not stopping. And finally, Sophia came into the house and she was so frustrated and she came to me and she said, listen, Bella is driving me crazy. And I had seen the whole thing unfold and Bella was indeed driving her crazy. (laughs) And so I said, listen, go out there and you tell her that I said to stop. And she walked out of that house with a new level of authority and and she walked out of those doors and she said, Bella, dad said to stop. Dad said to stop doing what you're doing. And it's interesting how you walk in a different authority when you know that someone else has sent you. It's different how you walk in a different level of authority when you know that you're not even the one that's carrying the authority, that you're just delivering the message. And so in that moment, in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, tell him I am sent you. Tell him I am sent you. In other words, what God was saying in that moment is that you're about to go through a great season of uncertainty, a great season of testing. You're about to walk through the wilderness. You're going to face things you've never faced before, but you're going to do it with I am. I am everything you will need to accomplish what I'm calling you to do in this season. And so the first time that God reveals himself in scripture, he uses this name, I am. And then the children of Israel are delivered and they're wandering in the wilderness. They start to grumble and, and, and they start to complain that they don't have food to eat. And so God sends them bread from heaven. He sends them bread from heaven called manna. And so what you have to understand is that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is speaking to people who for generations have heard the story of the people who went before them, who followed a God named I am who provided bread in the wilderness for them. This was not a loose metaphor for them. This was not something that they had to do a lot of research to try to figure out what he was talking about. They understood that the God that their ancestors had followed was called I am and that he provided bread in the wilderness that they called manna. And so when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it was as though Jesus was saying, I am what you've been waiting for. I am the God that you've been looking for. I am the God that you have been waiting to come on the scene and deliver you just like your ancestors were delivered out of slavery. I am going to deliver you out of your bondage to sin. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, it was loaded with meaning because they understood this story that went before them. And see, this is why for the religious leaders of the day, the things that Jesus did, Jesus healing the lepers, Jesus healing the lame, Jesus opening the eyes of the blind, Jesus performing miracles. Those things confused them. Those things made them wonder. But it was really the things that Jesus said. It was statements like this that made the religious leaders nervous. Because a lot of people had come before Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. But nobody had quite said it the way Jesus was saying it. 
Nobody had quite tied the, the, the Messiah to the God that had come before. No one had said, I am what you are waiting for in this moment. I am the bread of life. And when we think about bread, we don't always think of like a main course. We don't think about bread as the main attraction. I love Texas Roadhouse because their bread is outrageous. It's like those yeast rolls that I think they put like half a stick of butter on before they put them in the oven. And, and, and I love, Kristen and I occasionally, after our girls will go to sleep, we do something called late night steak night. Some of you've heard of it. And, and after the girls go to bed, we will order steak from uh, Texas Roadhouse. We will go pick it up and we will eat it in the solace of the late night. And there was a time recently where I went and picked it up and I got home and I didn't even think to check because this is just unthinkable to me, but they did not put the bread in, yeah, they did not, they did not put the bread in the bag. And I got to tell you, like the steak was good, the vegetables were good, but something was missing because at Texas Roadhouse, like the bread is actually something you want. In most restaurants, the bread is like a freebie. Most restaurants, the bread is like something you can take or leave. In our culture, we, we, people like kind of try to cut back on bread. Not me, but some people try to cut back on bread. Bread is something that they will cut out if they don't want it. But what you have to understand is that in this Middle Eastern culture at the time, bread was the main event. Like bread was the meal. So this was not Jesus saying, like, I am a great addition to whatever else you have going in your life. This was Jesus saying, I am the main attraction, the main source of sustenance for your life. I am the bread of life. Because, see, the ancestors that went before the people that Jesus was talking about, they knew that they needed bread to survive in the wilderness. And so Jesus is saying, I can be the bread that sustains you today. There was something else that they would have understood about this manna, though. There's something else that they would have understood about this bread that came in the wilderness. Is they had grown up understanding that this bread was dropped outside of their tents wherever they would camp. And they had to go out and they had to get that bread each and every morning. Now, I think this is interesting. Because if God's going to work a miracle, like, he could take it the next step and just put the bread in their tents. Like he could just, he could take it the next step and he could put the bread on their tables. And yet when God supplied the bread for the children of Israel, he put it outside their tents and they had to actually go out and get it each and every day. They had a daily dependence on going out and getting the bread and bringing it into the tent. See, I think what we forget sometimes is that the children of Israel, they were able to have as much bread in their tents as they brought into their tents as much bread as they were willing to go out and get. And the same is true for us today, that, that we can have as much access to what God is doing as we are willing to go out and get and bring into our homes, that we can have as much access to what he's doing as we are bringing into our homes. And I would ask all of us in this room today, what are you bringing into your home? You're bringing something into your home. Something is feeding your family. Something is discipling your family. Something is nourishing your family. What are you bringing into your home? Because see, so often we expect the spiritual lives of our family to rise to the level of our church, but it usually falls to the level of our homes. Uh, usually the bread that we have is whatever we have in our homes. And see, I, I think we, we so often are quick to put a focus on being the breadwinners of our home. 
And we look at that as though it just means financially providing for our families. But what if we put the same amount of effort into being the spiritual breadwinners of our home that we put into being the financial breadwinners of our home? My daughter, Bella, is raising money to go on the Nicaragua trip this summer. And as soon as she found out how much she had to raise, the first person she came to was me. And she said, listen, can you give me some money? And can you tell me how to get some money? Because she knows that I have at least some money and that I at least know how to get some money. And I want this same principle to be true of my children when it comes to their spiritual lives. I want them to come to me for bread. I want them to come from, to me when they have spiritual questions. I want them to come to me when they have worries. I want them to come to me. I want to have bread in the house that is available to them when they need it. Because see, the reason that she knows, the reason that she has any idea that money is even an option is because she knows that I have a job and I go to work and I pay for things. That I actually leave our house every day and I go out and I work and then I come home. And see, I think sometimes we don't allow our children and our families to see that we're actually doing some spiritual work that would let them know that we have the spiritual answers that they need, that that they actually know that we are in the word, that they actually know that we are praying, that they actually know that we are investing in our spiritual lives so that when they have those questions, they can come to us. I think this works itself out in very practical ways. A few years ago, and I have no problem with phones. I have no problem with, with the, the access that they give us to things. But a few years ago, I just, I was always reading my Bible on my phone. And I realized that my kids just see me on my phone. And so they don't know if I'm on Instagram. They don't know if I'm on TikTok. I'm not. They don't know. They don't know if I'm checking my bank account. They don't know what I'm doing. And so a few years ago, I just decided I got to get back to my physical Bible so that when my kids see me reading the Bible, they know I'm reading the Bible. That when they see that I'm actually doing it, they know what I'm actually doing. See, I think it's important that our children know that we're doing the spiritual work to have bread in the house, to have something of sustenance in the house, that when they need wisdom, when they need direction, that they can actually come to us in those moments. I want my kids to run into bread around the house. Like when my daughter comes to practice her piano, often my Bible is sitting on that piano because it's near where I do my morning devotions. I want her to see like the reason that is there is because it gets used. The reason that it's out is because it actually gets used because there's actually some spiritual work being done in those moments. See what happens when we gather here together The significance of what happens in these moments, the spiritual significance of what happens when we gather has far less to do with how we planned a service than it does how you prepared your soul throughout the week. It has far less to do with what we did to prepare this gathering than what you did to prepare yourself to come into this place and to bring it into this place. See, when when they heard that Jesus was the bread of life, this was the context they were coming from. This was the understanding of bread that they were coming from. They knew the story of a God who called himself, I am, and provided bread in the wilderness. But it's also important when Jesus said this. It's not just important who he said it to. We understand that he said it to people who who understood the story that came before. But the moment that he said it is significant as well. John said it in the book of, or Jesus said it in the book of John. And the book of John is one of my favorite books in the Bible because the book of John is kind of like always moving. 
Like Jesus is kind of always on the go in the book of John. And, and I'm, I'm kind of a person that's like always on the go. I don't like to sit down. If I'm on the phone, I'm standing up. If I'm working on my computer, I'm usually standing up. I like to just be on the go. And the book of John really portrays Jesus as someone who is always moving, who is always taking ground, who is always doing new things. And beyond that, the book of John is just full of life, like literally full of life. He uses the word life 36 times throughout the few chapters of the book of John. He's constantly saying that through Jesus comes life. And when we started this church, we actually used to talk about how one of the things that we wanted to be evident in this church when we gathered is that there would be signs of life. That like it just didn't feel like nothing was going on. And so we wanted there to be actual like signs of life, like babies and plants and music and th practical things that just say, hey, people are here gathering together. By the way, we opened a third nursery today because of all of the babies that you guys are bringing. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's great. I think that I know of, there's like four or five more on the way. So buckle up. But we always talked about we wanted there to be signs of life. And one of the things that is a sign of life is a crowd of people gathered. Right. Some people get kind of on edge when you talk about crowds and church, but can I just tell you that people gather where there is life. People gather where there is an expectation of something actually happening. I, 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 growing up, I absolutely loved, and this is going to be no shock to people who have been around, I absolutely loved David Letterman. Uh, he was like my idol growing up. I watched him every night. My dad would sneak me out of the room to watch David Letterman when my mom didn't know. It was fantastic. And so I would watch, and I loved that show. And have you ever had a goal that, like, suddenly it had a time clock on it? Like, you thought that you could just do it whenever, but then all of a sudden there's a time clock. All my life I had said, I'm going to go see David Letterman. I'm going to go see him live. I'm going to go to the show. I'm going to be in the audience. And then in 2014 he announced his retirement, and I was like, this has to happen. So Kristen and I, we went through this whole process. We got tickets. We got tickets to his final show, which was incredible. And so we went and we got the tickets early in the morning. You had to get them verified. You had to go. And then you had like hours to wait. Well, we were like in the area a few hours before the show. And there was just like a couple people gathered outside this side door to the Ed Sullivan Theater where they filmed the David Letterman show. And we were like, that's odd. So we went and we gathered with this group of people. And we were like, what's going on here? And they were like, we don't know. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And they were like, well, someone was like, well, we just started standing here because today is David Letterman's last show. And we just assumed that there's going to be some crazy guests coming through this door. They hadn't announced who was going to be on there. Like, so we just started standing here. So we're like, that's a great idea. So we just stood there as well. About 10 or 15, 20 of us. Then there was like 50 of us. Within like an hour, there were thousands of people on each side of barriers. There were police lining that door. And sure enough, like an hour and a half before showtime, Peyton Manning comes walking through. Jerry Seinfeld comes walking through. Bill Murray, uh, to, uh, all kinds of just different celebrities. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, all these different celebrities of that time. They were all coming through one at a time, com coming through one at a time. And the crowd was just going crazy. And it's amazing how when there's a sense of anticipation, you don't even have to know what it's about to gather. You don't even have to know what's coming to gather. You're just like, uh, okay, there's something happening here. I don't want to miss it. 
And I believe that Harbor Church can be that crowd gathering for what God wants to do in Sarasota. I believe that this is evidence of what God wants to do in this city, that it's like, hey, I don't know exactly what's going to happen right here, but I know I want to be here when it happens. Like, I don't know exactly who's going to come through this door. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I want to be among the people who are standing and waiting for it. And this is why we always saw a crowd with Jesus, because they didn't know what he was going to do, but they knew it was going to be great. They didn't know what miracle he would perform today, but they knew it was going to be extraordinary. And so in John chapter 6, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he said it to a crowd, but he said it not to just any crowd. He said it to a crowd whom he had just performed a miracle for. And in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish, the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for, for each to have one bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Hey, I, I love that in this moment, Jesus asks Philip a question that he already knows the answer to. Jesus asks Philip a question that he already had a solution for. Can I, I just remind you in this moment that Jesus has solutions for problems that you don't even know you have yet. Right. Like in this moment, Philip did not know that Jesus was going to ask, how can we feed all of these people? But suddenly it was a problem for Philip, but it says Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. And for some of you that are facing situations that seem impossible, that seem like you cannot come up against them, can I just remind you that Jesus already has in mind what he's going to do in your situation? that he already has in mind how he's going to work in your situation. And Philip does something that, that we do so often. Jesus, Philip tries to answer the question with how they're going to feed that many people. Jesus didn't ask him how they were going to feed that many people. He asked where they were going to go to get the food. I think we get this reversed all the time when we face situations that, that seem impossible as we, we question God, how could I possibly make this happen? How could my family possibly be normal again? How could my relationship possibly make it through this? How could, my, how could my family ever come back together? God, how can I get through this financial situation? But Jesus is not asking how, he's asking where. He's saying, where are we going to get the food for this moment? See, we get so blinded by the how that sometimes we forget the where. 
we forget that God is our source. That the one who's actually asking the question is the one who actually has the answer. That the one who's actually asking the question is the one that we need to go to. So we need to try, we need to start, uh, we need to quit asking questions that Jesus isn't asking. We need to quit trying to answer how when he's asking us where. Asking how will wear you out. Asking how will burn you out. Asking how will fry your mind running it over and over and over. We need to be like, like David who said in Psalm 121:2, I lift up my eyes to the mountain where my help comes from. I look to the source of where my help comes from and I don't concern myself with how as long as I know where. I don't concern myself with how as long as I know where. And then in this moment, where Philip is questioning how. It says, Andrew spoke up. I love those words. Andrew spoke up. See, so often for God to work in the lives of people who need us, someone just has to speak up. Someone just has to actually say, this is what we have in this moment. There's a whole crowd of people that needs food. There's a whole crowd of hungry followers of Jesus. And it says, Andrew spoke up up in that moment. And those thousands of hungry people were, were, were fed because he spoke up. Now, I wonder how many times people around us do not experience the love of God because we didn't speak up. They don't experience the provision of God because we don't speak up. See, I think so often God is just waiting for someone to speak up in order to move. And what I love about him in this moment is that he doesn't wait until he has what he needs. He just gives Jesus what he has. He says, hey, here's a guy who has one lunch, but I will give the little that we have, and I know that you can multiply it and make it what we need in this moment. See, God can work with your limited resources, but he cannot work with what you will withhold. He cannot heal what you won't reveal. He cannot, he cannot work with what you will not give to him. See, in these moments, so often we get focused on what we don't have that we don't have enough to meet the need. But God says in this moment, if you'll just give me what you have, if you'll just give me what you have in this moment, I'll make it what you need. I'll make it what you need. And it's after this miracle that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So they have the context of the history that they grew up and they have the understanding of bread. They have the understanding of provision. But now they see in this moment a sign where Jesus is not just saying, I am the bread of life. He's providing the bread that they actually need. He's providing what they actually need in that moment. And the story goes on in John chapter 6, verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus had snuck across the lake. They said, and Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. See, in this moment, Jesus is saying, you're, you're looking for me only because I did something for you in the moment, not because of who I am. You're looking for me because of the, the, the provision that I gave you in a moment. But see, so often what we want is the provision and not the person. We want the miracle that God can do for us, but we don't actually want the person of Jesus. And this is the context in which Jesus says, listen, you're following me because I'm feeding your needs, but what you don't understand is that I am the bread of life. 
that the bread you just ate satisfied you for a moment, but I am the bread of life that will satisfy you through all of eternity. It says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. That's a weird thing to say. Like in this moment, there, there is no real context to say, oh, well, this is what they would have thought in this moment when Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, they were thinking cannibalism. Like their minds had no context. We look back on this and we say, oh, clearly he was talking about the story, the sacrifice that would come, that his body would be sacrificed. They did not yet have that context. They did not yet understand this teaching. Jesus is trying to say, I am the bread of life, and unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not have life. So it's understandable that the very next verse says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to leave me too, do you? And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the one true God. This is a hard teaching. Let's get out of here. That was the response of the majority of the people who had just seen the miracle that Jesus performed in their life. This is a hard teaching. We have to go get out of here. We cannot sit under this teaching. You know, it's something interesting about wheat that I learned this week is that you can't actually just eat wheat. Like if you tried to eat wheat, you could eat a little bit, but if you ate a lot of wheat, your body cannot process it. Your body cannot process wheat by itself. Wheat has to first be made into bread in order for us to process it. And I think it's so interesting that in this moment on this teaching of bread, Jesus is saying something that they have to actually process in order for it to go through them. They have to actually process it. They have to process a hard teaching in order to make anything of it in that moment. Because when they heard the hard teaching, it only made them sick. It only turned their stomach. It was something that they could not accept in that moment. It's it's always easier to walk away when it's hard. It's always easier to walk away from a teaching when it's hard. It's always easy to walk away from a relationship when it's hard. It's always easier to walk away when it's hard. And for kind of all of the ridicule that Peter gets throughout Scripture, he denies Jesus, he cuts off someone's ear in anger. In this moment, in this moment, Peter nails it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter said, we don't understand this either, but where else are we supposed to go? We've seen that you have the words of eternal life. I think there's some of us in this room even today who we would say in this season, God, what you are teaching me in this season, this is a hard lesson. God, what you are teaching me in this season, this is a hard lesson. This is a hard pill to swallow. But can I tell you, there's something about staying There's something about staying when it's hard. There's something about staying when you don't quite understand. There's something about staying when it's difficult. See, the 12, they stayed even when it was difficult. 
Even when it was hard, they stayed with Jesus. They stayed through the hurt. They stayed instead of avoiding. They stayed through the doubt and uncertainty. See, we probably give them a little bit too much credit in this moment. They did not understand this teaching either, and yet they stayed through it. And here's the interesting thing about staying, is that when you stay long enough to actually see it through, then you actually get to see the promise. See, because when Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, those that walked away never got to see the fulfillment of that promise. Those who walked away never actually got to see exactly what it means that God is the bread of life. But then, just a short time later, as Jesus is gathered around the disciple with his table, gathered around the table with his disciples, the night before he's crucified, he again takes bread and he takes wine. And he says the same exact thing. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot be called my follower. See, those 12 who stayed the next day would see Jesus crucified. And a few days later would see Jesus risen from the dead. And then suddenly they can look back on this teaching that I am the bread of life. And they can see the promise in the teaching. They can see the promise in what Jesus said all along. See, those that walked away in that moment, they had provision for a moment. They got their bellies filled for a moment. They got their bellies filled for a moment. They had provision for a moment, but they did not see it through to eternal life. But the followers who stayed through the tough moments saw through to the promise. And I want to talk to someone in this room this morning who is in a tough season. Someone in this room this morning who who is in a season that would say, this is a hard teaching. This is a hard season that if you see it through, if you stay when it's easier to walk away, that ultimately you will see the promise that he is the bread of life, that he is the provision that you need, that he is the provision that you are longing for. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning all across this room?